0: Amen. Be seated, please. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter ten, it should be more or less dead center of your Bible. And um, we're going to start the reading in verse five. I would encourage you to read along with your eyes, not just your ears, as this passage is uh, it's not an easy one. It's going to require a little bit of brain power. Hear the word of God. This is for you today. "Woe to Assyria. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury." against a godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets but he does not so intend and his heart is not sorry and his heart does not so think but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few for he says are not my commanders all kings is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Harmath like Arphad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand is reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of J- Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion, and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And the boastful look in his eyes, for he says, By the strength of my hand I've done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken." So I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. In glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, as it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The Remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on Him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did, for in a very little while my fury will come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip, as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aiath, he has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They've crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gebeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lisha! O poor Anathoth. Madmenas in flight. The inhabitants of Ge- Gebeam flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Yeah, that's a lot. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, you will tell us in, I guess, 40 chapters or so, that your ways are not our ways. That they are much higher. And there are some days where our pride deludes us into thinking that's not very true. That our minds are capable of matching yours And then we read a passage like this, and again, it's so big, (laughs) and we see our frailty and our limitation again. We thank you that your word is perfect. We confess that we are not, and we ask, O Lord, that you would speak to us now by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It's fun to think on Easter weekend, kind of how the dynamics of this weekend would have played out those thousands of years ago, when Jesus, alive, real, second person of the Trinity, which we've just confessed in the Chalcedonian Creed, one person, two natures, not mingling or merging, this Jesus lived… And then this weekend, those thousands of years ago, he died. Really, truly died. Died in his humanity. In fact, even remained under the power of the grave for a time. Problem was, if it were a wrestling match, it would be like well, the most unfair wrestling match in history. The grave, which has conquered everyone else, which is six billion and zero, or whatever it is, suddenly no longer is powerful enough, and Jesus wins. Raised himself from the dead, brought back to life by his own power even, and then in this new and resurrected life goes about his ministry. And I love how as we think about that, it's From our side now, so many years removed a a, a tremendously neat and tidy process. I mean, let's be honest, it's neat and tidy. Most of us, not most, maybe many of us, have grown up spending our whole lives where that story, true story, that real history, has been the formative story, true history in our minds, some of you have stories like mine where I don't remember a day in my life where I didn't believe that was the truth. I, I love that. How, what a gift God has given. Some of you, you came to faith later in life, and you remember the day where it became true. Where is the day where you began to understand it, where you believed it, where it was yours. But while it was so neat and tidy for so many of us, I love to contemplate this weekend really from the disciples' perspective. Because as much as we love them and as holy as they are and as wonderful as they kind of become after Pentecost, so much of the gospels are the disciples being these kind of wonderfully comedic and inspirational figures that just don't get it when they have chance. Like when they have chance to succeed in a new and fresh fashion, they just drop the ball and fall apart. And this year, one of my contemplations to think about is to just think about how much sleep do you think they had gotten in the last couple of nights? I mean, think about that. Like, I mean, for just an honest kind of assessment. Jesus had been teaching them for three years, better part of three years, that he was going to live, that he was going to die, and he was going to be raised. He had been teaching them about the sign of Jonah, that he would remain under the power of the grave for three days. On the third day, he would be raised. But they hadn't always understood everything real well. And in fact, actually, if you read the Gospels carefully, in many ways, it's the women, actually, who have seemed to grab the idea and run with it, have understood it well and trusted Christ But I love to just think, this has been kind of one of my contemplations this last week. How much sleep do you think the disciples had gotten? By the time resurrection Sunday happens, by the time they're out running to the tomb, as the time that, you know, John's out running Peter, Peter probably slightly older, maybe some bad knees from fishing, a bad back. John, the young man's hoofing it out there. Do you think they had rested well? Or do you think they had been laying in bed trying to struggle to understand what was going on? Trying to make sense of, why would the Jews do this? He's the king of the Jews. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one that the Bible's been talking about from the very beginning. Why would they kill him? Why would they do this to him? Why would they put him to death? Or Rome? I mean, if the the Jews… what Rome! Rome has no stake in this. Why would Rome be involved? Why would they be part of the powers used to end the life of our teacher, the Lord Jesus? You have to kind of imagine in some sense there's probably not a whole lot of sleep that went on I mean, we know they kind of gathered back together in the upper room. We know that they kind of, in sense, went on lockdown, circled the wagons. They didn't know if they were going to die or not, if uh, Rome or the Jews would come after them next. You have to imagine, in some sense, there was an immense sense of panic and worry, and a lot of questions. How could this happen? How could this happen? How could this take place? The Lord of life in a tomb. And the great reality is that, and this is a sweet thing, where the disciples were having those kinds of worries with those kinds of sleepless nights, Honestly, some of us in the room bring similar kinds of worries. Not the same, obviously. Jesus isn't in the tomb, he's alive, seated at the right hand of the Father right now. But we bring our own worries, don't we? We bring our own concerns. We bring our own sleepless nights. We bring our own bothers with coworkers or family members. We bring our own situations and circumstances. We bring our own trials and difficulties physical pains, illnesses, and ailments, we bring with us in this moment the product of the curse of God and our own sin. And there are probably very few of us in the room, certainly not if you're older maybe than a teenager, that aren't sitting here with some source of of, of stress, of concern, of hurt, heartache, worry, panic, or difficulty in our lives. And honestly, As those sleepless nights kick in periodically, we have those same kind of questions. How is this happening? What is going on? How is it possible that this is happening? And I think we'll probably be able to, hopefully, God willing, answer those questions from Isaiah chapter 10. If you've been with us through this series, we're just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Isaiah. Didn't pick chapter 10 for Easter Sunday. Probably wouldn't pick chapter 10 for Easter Sunday, but I'm not mad at it. It's a good passage, though very difficult. And through this, we've been working through this kind of tension of the Lord building himself a kingdom and his people continuing to be unfaithful. The Lord setting out plans and goals and commands and work, and his people continuing to be unfaithful. And that's really come to a head here in chapters 8, 9, and 10, where they have to, in some sense, pay the piper. The chickens are coming home to roost, so to speak. God's people have disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed. And in chapter 10, we run into the clearest, most pointed, most precise prophecy of what's fulfilled in 722 B.C. 722 is when the the Assyrian army comes in and invades what's left of the northern kingdom. They have a sham ruler at that point. He's a joke of a king. He's already been put in place by another country and is being kind of ruled as a puppet uh, in that way. But in 722, uh, God's people are effectively destroyed in the northern kingdom. And it's Assyria that does it. They come in and more or less wipe them off the map for a long, long, long time. Uh, It's really not until, I guess, 1940s uh, that we get to see really that Israel exist again in any real, substantial, and honest way. And it's hard. And those kind of lingering questions would be in the air, like, how is this possible? God, how are you doing this that, that your nation could be wiped off the face of the planet, or at least the northern kingdom at this point? It'll be another 140 years before the southern kingdom follows in 586. And I think verses 5 through 11 provide us kind of the first part of this answer. Here's what I want you to see. The Lord uses nations, institutions, and people as the agents of His purposes. The Lord uses nations, institutions, and people as the agents of His purposes. So, the Lord's designed to do something. He's laid out His plan. He is uh, activating His plan within the confines of creation. What does He use to do it? Now, we know the, how He created, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us, He created everything that is uh, by the Word of His power. He spoke it into existence. He, he did everything fiat by His voice directly. He spoke, it It happened. And we know that he still does similar kinds of work today, but we tend to call those miracles, where he directly works in creation with no kind of in-between. God speaks and it happens. Now, that that happens, but that's no longer the primary way he works. Now, the primary way that he works is through nations and institutions and people And circumstances, and dogs, and traffic lights, and grocery stores, and the irritating people that make you crazy all of the time. Look at what he happens to say here in the text. We've just finished this whole list of woes and the refrain four series of woes. In verse 4 at the end, it ends with kind of the, the refrain of this chorus. For all this, his, God's anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. So his people have sinned, Israel has sinned, and now judgment is coming. Now, what does that judgment look like? Woe to Assyria! And then notice how he identifies them the rod of my anger. Now, the Assyrians are not known for being, uh, at least at this point in history, generous people. We wouldn't call them good people. In fact, we would call them the villains of basically every story they're involved in. Uh, Their culture was corrupt their relationship with their idols was abominable they were famous for child sur- uh, sacrifice and a bunch of whole, uh, other horrible things they treated their captives terribly they were villains in every way and yet interestingly how are they introduced in this kind of I many was climactic prophecy they're the weapon of god's anger They are the tool that God will use. They are the mechanism whereby he will accomplish his purposes. They are the thing that he's going to use as his tool, the same way a carpenter would use a saw or a hammer or a screwdriver or a nail. You think about your job and the various tools that you would have to use. Now, many of you, it's a computer screen, a keyboard, and maybe a mouse. It's weird that that's now become, I guess, in so many lives, the primary tool set of what you need. But it's interesting that now the Lord goes to speak about his work inside creation, and what is he using? He's using a nation, and not just a nation, a wicked one. The most wicked one we can find in the story at this point, Babylon will show up and probably surpass them. This is the rod of my anger. Uh, The staff in their hands, their uh, weapons of war are for my fury. They are the things that I'm using. They are the things that I am purposing to accomplish my tasks, God says. In fact, actually against this northern kingdom, this godless nation, the Lord himself will now send the king of Assyria. And if you had any kinds of questions as to what kind of man this king is, he's absolutely wretched. Verse 6, against this godless Israel, I will send this wicked king against the people of my wrath. I will command this king to go. And what's he going to do? He's going to seize. He's going to uh, plunder. He's going to tread them down like mire in the streets. He's going to walk through, if you've ever been in a, a part of the world that doesn't have um, public public, plumbing where all the stuff gets, you know, kind of chucked out in the street and it's just nasty and gets, you know, kind of walked over and smushed into the mud. This king has no intention of helping Israel. He has no intention of really conquering the land and ruling it well. His intention is to destroy. And he is so proud. Verse 8, listen to how this king boasts are not all my commanders all kings, right? He's boasting. Look, even the, 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 you know, the sergeants, even the captains, even the generals in my army, they're all kings. I'm so powerful. You've never seen a man like me. Is not Kalno like Karkamash? And I love this. We don't know our Old Testament geography, so these just sound like crazy names that I'm pronouncing correctly every time and haven't messed up once. Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Demath? These are all the locations in the north when Assyria, let's see I do this backwards for you. When Assyria would be invading into the northern kingdom, these are the cities and regions that they would have invaded in first. And what is he boasting? Look, even, <laughs> even this nation's ridiculous worship, am I not more worthy than even their worship? He's a terrible man. He's a wicked man. He's a wicked king. He's uh, practicing false religion where he himself is, in some sense, being worshiped. He's uh, practicing an abominable culture that would have treated people as worse than, you know, ugh, ter- terrible things. And people died horrible ways and he destroyed nations. Interestingly, what is the Lord saying? This wicked man is my agent. He is the thing that I am using and using well for my purposes. And you go, whew, I mean, really? I mean, is, is, that, is that really what's happening? That here in Isaiah, you have God using such a wicked man and such a wicked nation to accomplish something that God wants done. And we can fast forward 750 years or so and ask those same kinds of questions about the Jews, about the high priest, about Pontius Pilate and the Romans. These people are all wicked. You read the Gospels, you read the the death narrative and the resurrection narratives of Jesus and you think all of these people are wicked. They're the bad guys. Pilate's a coward, the crowds are fickle. They crown Jesus on one day. A week later, they're calling for a murderer to be let loose so that Jesus would be killed instead because he didn't fulfill their financial and political aspirations. Is this really what's going on? And I think the comforting thing is to know the God of the Bible is so big The God of the Bible is so great. The God of the Bible is so grand. I can't get the arms out wide enough. His power is so profound. He can use anything he wants to do his purposes. He can use a wicked king of Assyria, a wicked nation of Assyria. He can use a coward, Pontius Pilate. He can use a wicked Annas the High, or Caiaphas the High Priest. He can use a wicked Jewish synagogue and temple. He can use anything he wants to do his purposes. Now, that being said, Uh, This is, I guess, where the rubber hits the road, because we have to choose, are we going to believe what God says about himself, or are we going to choose to kind of harbor our own petty fascinations? Because here's the reality, is that every one of us in here at some point, I mean, if we're going to be honest, has somebody that's in our head or in our heart that we perhaps think is a bit villainous. We don't trust their motives. We don't trust their actions. We don't trust them at all. We think they're the bad guy in the story. All of us in our head and in our hearts have that one person that we're like, oh, man, they just drive me crazy. They make me nutty. Or worse yet, we might have that person that, again, like the opening illustration, causes us to lose sleep because we're too angry to sleep. Or we're too hurt to sleep. Or we're so hurt we can't do anything but sleep. And the interesting thing in the background of all of those complaints, in the background of all of those hurts and heartaches, in the background of all of those pains and difficulties, in the background of all of that, the Bible is kind of singing this beautiful melody over the top of it saying, the Lord is using even that in your life. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. Interestingly, whatever these difficulties are that God has placed in your life, he's placed them there for purpose, for his good purpose. And we know we have promised in Scripture, it's wonderful Romans 8, that his good purposes are for his glory and for your good. We know that. Israel's relationship to Assyria, which is about to be wiped off the map by them, is for God's glory and for their good. Jesus' relationship to the Jews and to the Romans is for God's glory and for our good. The death and resurrection, for God's glory and for our good. Because our God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. Now, if you're kind of a consistent and logical thinker, and this is one of the challenges of good biblical theology, of being faithful to texts and being faithful theologians, the natural temptation will then be to say, well… If our God is so big and so strong and so mighty, and there's nothing our God cannot do, if our God is the one who uses nations, institutions, and people as agents of his purposes, if that's true, then everything bad is his fault. Right? That's the logical kind of consequence is if if our God is that big, if, if He's using everything and everyone, if He's using every circumstance, even the traffic lights for His purposes, well, then everything's His fault. Wrong, but I appreciate the effort at being consistent. And the reason for that is because we live as humans in a world that is finite. We are finite creatures. We can exist in one place at one time. Uh, one. We're one. We're one thing. And we're not a line. We're a dot. We're one person, one point in space and time. I mean, we can't even see what's outside the walls of this building. The world could have ended over there, and none of us would know. Or behind me, none of us would know. We can't. We don't know. We're such small creatures. But because of our limitations, everything for us has to be in some sense either or types of things. It's either yes or no. It's one or the other because we are finite. We exist in one moment in time. The challenge, though, is that our God does not exist in one moment in time. He exists outside of time. This is something that I I love that kind of modern science is beginning to explore in really the most full and faithful way we've seen yet in human history, which is to say in some sense, time, space, matter, and energy are all effectively the same thing. They're just variations on a theme, effectively. Time, space, matter, and energy are really in some sense all the same again, with slight variations. And the interesting thing is that our God exists outside of all of those. He exists outside of time, so he sees it all laid out before him simultaneously. He exists outside of energy, so there are no limitations to what he's able to do. There's no constraints to his power. He exists outside of matter, so if he wants to make matter, he speaks it. If he wants it to go away, he speaks that, and it disappears exists outside of space outside of the three dimensions four if you include time whoever knows how many if there are actually other dimensions he exists outside of that our god is greater and bigger and grander and as a result can interact with creation in a way that is very challenging for our minds to understand which is what we run into here, where the consequence of these actions, you could see that he's using Assyria as his agent of destruction. And it would be natural for us to want to say, well, God, you're the one to blame. But the interesting thing is the Lord's going to explain, who's the one that wants to do it? Is it him that wants to do it? No, he's going to use them. Or does Assyria do exactly what they want to do? Look at verses 12 through 19. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, so when he's done with his purposes, when Assyria has fulfilled everything that he wants them to do, when they have destroyed Israel the way that he wishes, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. He's going to punish the Assyrians, even though they were effectively fulfilling his purposes. They were uh, the rod of his wrath. He will punish them. Why? Why is he going to punish the king of Assyria? Why is he going to punish the Assyrians? Because of the arrogant heart of the king, verse 12, the boastful look in his eyes, and then verse 13, what does this king then say? It's by the strength of my hand that I've done all of this. It's by my wisdom that I've done all of this. It's by my understanding that I've done all of this. I am the one who have conquered peoples. I am the one who have stolen their treasures. I am the one who has torn down thrones and kingdoms. I am the one who has plundered the entirety of the earth. And then he gives this just magnificent kind of thievery illustration in verse 14. Like a a person who's trying to steal eggs out of a bird's nest, he says, I have been so good at my conquering that I have stolen the eggs of the entire world and I've been so successful that none of the birds were able to stop me from doing it. My hand has found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. I've I've captured their wealth. As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I've gathered all of the earth. I've, I've plundered the entire planet and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth, or chirped. He's been so good that none of the birds were even able to fight back, which is an amazing thing to think about, and considering that most of the time we have mockingbirds that nest just over on that side, and you go anywhere near those bushes over there, they are going to let you know you don't need to be near them. They'll come at you, they will buzz you, right? They'll come at your eyes, at your face, you don't want to do that, or Uh, even the two geese that we have wandering around that we've lovingly named and added to our uh, church membership and directory. You go play with the geese, man. Those geese will come at you. You don't want that, right? You've been chased by a goose. You'll remember that for the rest of your life. This is a scary thing, isn't it? They get big and loud, and they move a lot quicker than you expect them to. In all seriousness, what's the king of Assyria doing? He's boasting in his own ability. He's boasting in his own power. He's boasting in his own desire. He's boasting in his own grandeur. And as a result, the Lord says, you know what, bucko, judgment comes to you too. And then you have the Lord assessing the king in verse 15. And this assessment is just devastating. Shall the ax boast over him who hews with it? (laughs) I love that. Um, shall the hammer boast about how good it's driving an nail it is when it's really the carpenter that's using it? Hey, king of Assyria, you want to boast about how great you are? Can we just be clear? You are simply a tool in a carpenter's hands. But because of your pride, because of your arrogance, because you yourself have done these evil things, destruction will come. Verse 16, destruction will come. Verse 17, destruction will come. And oh yeah, by the way, this destruction will be God himself destroying you. Verse 18, destruction will come and it will be the Lord himself that does it. And the destruction will be so wonderfully comprehensive in verse 19 that nothing will remain. This is where we get to see the tensions of how we understand the difficulty of the world, that the Lord uses all of our, uh, our challenges. He, he uses nations, institutions, people as agencies of His purposes. But secondly, the Lord uses them in such a way as not to violate their agency or their responsibility in the matter. The Lord uses these nations, these institutions, these people in such a way that it doesn't violate their responsibility. It doesn't it doesn't remove the consequences of their actions. In Sunday school, I always use Wesley as an illustration. He normally sits right up here in the front, and that's my running gag illustration with Wesley. And one of my favorite illustrations in Sunday school is if what would happen if I ran up and punched Wesley in the face. It's a terrible illustration, not funny in any way, but it's wonderful because it teaches the point. If that were to happen, in some sense, would that be me serving as, in some way, an agent of the Lord's purposes? Well, our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. He would use even that. Wesley would get the opportunity to learn a lesson. And interestingly, in the sense of great personal responsibility, I would get a chance to learn a lesson as I sat in jail for assault, because you're not allowed to go hit people in the face. It's against the law. Both things can be true at the same time that God is using a thing and people get the consequences of their actions. That there is human responsibility. If I assault one of our church members, it can be true that God's using it, and it can also be true that I get the consequence of that action and I go to jail. Both are possible interestingly, we get to think about that really in terms of for the disciples over the Easter weekend, this kind of contrast of going, well, is the Lord, was he using the Jews? Was he using Rome? Was he using Pontius Pilate? Was he using even the cross itself? Yes, yes. But just because he's using those things, does that remove the responsibility of these people, of Judas, of Pilate, of Caiaphas and Annas? No, 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 no. People are still responsible for our own sin. We get the consequences for our sin, and that's, again, where if you're a consistent thinker, you start to panic. Again, if you're a consistent thinker. A lot of us aren't consistent thinkers. We're like, just whatever. I'll go, you know, watch some more TV and turn my brain off. But if you're a consistent thinker, this is where we start to kind of have a little bit of panic because while we might not think we're as bad as the king of Assyria, while we might not think we're as bad as you know, Pilate, we literally didn't actually put Jesus to death. We know deep down in our own hearts what goes on in our brain. Like realistically, we know that. We know the thoughts that pass in between our ears. We know the actions that we've done. We know who we are. In a consistent thinker, this is the point where we start to panic in the story. Because if God is sovereign and can use all of the things to teach us stuff and can use our lives for our good and for his glory, and if God is still doing this in such a way that people get the consequences of their actions, well, there's a problem for us, isn't there? Because we're going to get the consequences for our actions, and I love that actually that's, that's where the, the passage changes. Verse 20 is where we march, uh, mark the, the major change in tone, where it moves from this kind of the judgment of Assyria now to the Lord explaining his relationship to his people. Now, this is not his relationship to the unbeliever. This is not his relationship to his enemies, to those that hate him and will never know him. This is his relationship to his people. And what does he say? And his power guarantees their preservation and their blessing. That's what he says. His power guarantees their preservation and their blessing. Look, verse 20, in that day the day where the great shuffling takes place, where the enemies of God are destroyed and his people are dealt with in that day. There will be survivors from the house of Israel. There won't be from Assyria. There won't be from the enemies of God, but from his people. He will preserve his people. And instead, what they will learn, and I love this in verse 20, what's he going to accomplish is that they will learn to lean on on the one who disciplined them to lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. i make a, a note here, parents. It's interesting how the Lord is instructing discipline. This is very instructive. When he disciplines his children, the discipline is designed to make them more reliant upon him, not less. Now, some of you adults in the room might have grown up in homes where, when your parents disciplined you, the consequence was that you were sent away. That there was a chasm that was created. That there was a breach in fellowship where you hated each other or you were angry with each other or there were yelling words that were said and then you were sent away. Some of us that might hit a little too close to home. It's a little too raw. It's interesting that the Lord speaks of discipline very, very differently, and that when he disciplines his people, the goal is not to send them away, it's to bring them home, it's to bring them to his side and to make them reliant upon him, that they would learn to lean on the one who disciplined them, because he loves them, he cares for them, he's watching over them. Just as a side application, parents, when you discipline your children, please learn to do this correctly don't punish your kids and send them away. Discipline them and bring them home. Be united with them, even when they don't want to be. Teach them to lean on you and trust you. All right, so verse 20, the Lord will do this. He'll bring his people back to himself. He'll force them to teach them to trust him, to rely on him, to rest upon him. Verse twenty one, he will bring these people back because he's the mighty God. He's he's the powerful one. He's uh, the glorious one. Verse twenty two, that's not necessarily all the Jews he's talking about, but his people from verse twenty three, even the ends of the earth, his people from all time and space and places and locations. And I love the change in verse twenty four. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of, and then he starts listing all of the boogeymen that they can imagine. All of the things that they would have been afraid of, all of the nations that would have been in their nightmares, all of the things that would have been that which scared them. He says, you don't have to be afraid of this anymore because I'm your God and you are my people you don't have to be afraid of the Assyrians. I'm going to destroy them. You don't have to be afraid of the Egyptians. I've already destroyed them. You don't have to be afraid because I'm your God and I am going to take care of you. I love that we get to see this really even in the New Testament, that wonderful passage that Brandon read, 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated, the one that we're all afraid of, the boogeyman that no one beats. Death is even defeated. Right? Everyone that doesn't know Christ literally should spend every minute of their life terrified of death because it's going to get them. It gets all of us. And I love, you get this idea here, look, you don't have to be afraid of the boogeyman. You don't have to be afraid of the villains. You don't have to be afraid of the bad guys because God wins over them. And the one that gets all of us, even in death, we win because we won't stay dead. Death wasn't powerful enough to contain Jesus, and because it wasn't powerful enough to contain Jesus, it will not be powerful enough to contain you and me if we're in Christ. 26 and following, we have example after example after example of of the ways in which God is going to raise up and defend his people, these wonderful illustrations. Until we get to verses 28 through really, we'll say, 32, this geographical list of places that I pronounced entirely correctly with no mistakes, again, a north to south line of really where the boundary with Assyria would be, and what he's showing now is, look, all of these locations that the Assyrians have or will wipe off the map, will no longer be marks of defeat, but will even cry out in victory, because God himself will enter the fight. The Lord himself will win. In fact, verses 33 and 34, he's going to win so com- comprehensively, so totally, so profoundly, he gives this kind of, you know, uh, lumberjack illustration of all the trees being destroyed. Until chapter 11, verse 1, ruining the sermon for next week. Jesus. The Lord the Lord's power guarantees the preservation and the blessing of his people. That's actually in some sense why the Easter weekend is so important, it's why historically the church didn't celebrate Easter just on Easter. It's why and the way our catechism says it from creation until the resurrection The church celebrated one day in seven set aside for God, and that day was Saturday, right? The seventh day was always set aside from creation all the way until the resurrection. But the resurrection was so important that God's day was changed from the seventh day to the first to Sunday to Resurrection Day so that every week the church would celebrate and remember and be reminded and get to the front of our brain that Jesus was raised and I will be too. And that God's victory is so comprehensive, so overwhelming, so profound, so total, that death didn't conquer Jesus and it won't conquer me either. And if death can't conquer me when I'm in Christ, what can, seriously? I mean, think about that, death is like the best enemy ever. <laughs> it's the one that like nobody returns from, really, except for all of the people that are in Jesus and they all return from it. it, it it's the most amazing thing. The Lord's power guarantees the preservation and the blessing of his people. I might end with this. I again, if we're going to be a, an intentional and consistent thinker, this would be the kind of deal that would sound too good to be true. That our God works entirety and through the entirety of creation, he works entirely through the entirety of creation. That there's no part of my life that he's not working in and not working through, that there's no part of the difficulties that I'm confronted with that he's not working in and working through. And even those people that are aggravating me, I don't have to take revenge on them because the Lord's going to hold them responsible for their own actions. But that if I'm in Christ, his power will preserve me. It'll take care of me. If I'm in Christ, he will bless me. He will watch over me. If I'm in Christ, I'm guaranteed victory. I might make it there with my hair on fire, but I'm guaranteed to win. It might seem too good to be true, and that's exactly the whole point of this entire book, (laughs) is that it is too good to be true. It's too good, but it is true that this is the reality of the Scriptures, that Jesus Christ The second person in the Trinity stepped inside time, space, energy, and matter to put on humanity, to live that perfect life, to die that unjust death, to remain under the power of the grave for a time, to raise himself, and then ultimately ascend into glory, to take you with him. And I love this. What did it cost you? What does it cost you? What will it cost you? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. and everything. It costs you nothing. It's purchased by Christ. It's given to you freely. And the consequence is that he demands everything. Our challenge going forward this Easter weekend and every weekend really is to delight in that God that works in such a way. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you For passages like this, would you continue to nourish our hearts for Christ's sake? Amen.